Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. Over the weekend, we passed the 53rd anniversary of the assassination of one of the nation's most extraordinary leaders. And tonight we reflect on his incredible legacy and on the horrendous consequences that can come of hatred and division. The Reverend Martin Luther King fought against injustice and racism, voicing with moral certitude the very best of the American promise. He also showed us a powerful path for change makers the unyielding use of nonviolent civil disobedience to pique the national conscience and move the most stubborn sentiments, and it has shaped change movements forever. King's call to Americans to engage in their democracy to make it better resonates with the essential mission of the common good, so we are very pleased to contemplate Martin Luther King and his legacy this evening. I was privileged in my first job after college to work on the Congressional House Committee staff to reopen the investigations of the assassinations of Martin Luther King and JFK. And I am no expert on Martin Luther King, for sure. That was um, uh, not the, the area that I uh, gravitated towards, but I am so privileged. We are very privileged today to have two very special guests with his, who can shed light on Martin Luther King's death and life. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge a few honorables and VIPs in the audience, some of whom will be joining us along the way and I'm sure uh, may have some very important um, ideas to, uh, to add to our conversation. We'll have Kay Koplovitz from our honorary board. She's media pioneer and founder of the USA Network and Springboard Enterprises. I'm really excited to have former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama, Jay Johnson, who's also on our honorary board. Hi, Jay. So good to see you. Um, Jay, I, you went to school with um, Martin Luther King III, right? That is correct. Yes, right. class Sorry. of 1979. I know you'll probably have something to say. Uh, we'll be seeing Bill Wachtel, who launched the Drum Major Institute with Martin Luther King III um, and King Confident Andrew Young. It was first founded in 1961 during the civil rights movement by Harry Wachtell, his father, who was a lawyer and a very close advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. We will have with us Bob Lehner, who was um, headed up the Martin Luther King Assassination Chief Council there, um, and Lisa Burlow Lehner, um, who was a researcher at that time and now a lawyer. Um, Chris Locke, who was a lawyer. Hi, Chris, I see you. Um, and Gerald Hamilton, who um, headed up research at the MLK assassinations and went on to the National Clandestine Service to head efforts to promote diversity and equal opportunity within that agency. Um, we hope these special guests and our audience uh, will join our conversation in the Q&A portion. So please raise your hand early so we can budget the time to get all your questions. We're also live streaming today's event on Facebook. So say hello. Hello to all of our friends out there. So as with these horrific acts of violence and assassination throughout our nation's history, the facts, the circumstances, the political atmosphere surrounding the assassination of Martin Luther King has long been the subject of scrutiny and discussion and skepticism about uh, the conclusions. We know that Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th that King was in town to support local sanitation workers. We also know that James O'Reilly, the man who was convicted of his murder and died in prison, was a longtime, rather insignificant criminal who, according to family and friends, was also a racist who supported 
segregation as George Wallace's presidential bid. The night before his assassination, King delivered a supremely poignant and prescient speech urging protesters to keep the focus on injustice of their fight by maintaining the nonviolence in their demonstration, but also said that the fight would continue even if he were not alive to see it, that he feared no man, he had been to the mountaintop. So what did the 1976 House Select Committee on Assassinations discover? What did it miss? What more is there to know about the murder of Martin Luther King Jr.? What was the role, if any, of government officials, political leaders, or white supremacy in the life and death of Martin Luther King? What can this crime teach us about hate and violence embraced or condoned by those in power? And how do we understand all of this in light of the path that set Martin Luther King and his civil rights movement uh, forward for this nation? So we have two incredible experts Please welcome Professor G. Robert Blakey. There he is. Um, Blakey extensively investigated both the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King as chief counsel to the U.S. House of Select Committee on Assassinations from 1977 to 1979 and has written several books on conspiracy and assassination in America. His book, The Plot to Kill the President, explored the people and motives that led to the murder of JFK. He has taught uh, criminal law and procedure, terrorism, jurisprudence at Notre Dame Law School. And he is the nation's foremost authority on the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, otherwise known as RICO, which was uh, used to bring down many organized crime figures. Professor Blakey, thank you so much for joining us. From Scottsdale, Arizona, <laughs> we're thrilled to have you. Also joining us this evening is Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, whose scholarship on race, culture, and religion, as well as his contributions to the New York Times and New Republic and ESPNs, The Undefeated, have greatly influenced the national dialogue. He may be best known for his New York Times bestseller, Tears We Cannot Cry, but he has published over 20 books, one of which is centered around tonight's topic, April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King's Death and How It Changed America. He is professor of African-American and diaspora studies and ethics and society studies at Vanderbilt University. And we are very thrilled to have his insight tonight. Dr. Dyson, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to see you again. Thank you both for joining us. I'm gonna get some basics down and hoping to open this up to audience, uh, including our special audience uh, members. Um, but let me go to you first, uh, Professor Blakey. The Select Committee on, Assass on Assassinations suggested there was or could have been a conspiracy in the case um, with James Earl Ray. What were the final conclusions of that investigation and what were the elements of a possible conspiracy that you tracked down? Well, we decided, uh, and I say this is the committee decided, uh, that Jer James Earl Ray uh, killed Dr. King uh, we also looked to see if he had any associates in it. And we did a survey to see who might have been a co-conspirator with him. And the first one was, could we connect James O'Reilly to any member of the FBI? Uh, and we did that because a lot of people had suspicion that in light of the COINTEL program, 
uh, outrageously aimed at Dr. King that it might have gone to the point of assassination. We also looked into the various units of the Ku Klux Klan. And I might drop as a footnote there. I thought the Ku Klux Klan was one agency. And it turns out that there are as many subsets of the Ku Klux Klan as there are letters in the alphabet. But what we did uh, is we looked at those two uh, and then uh, and then a major point that the, particularly the, the chairman of both the subcommittee and the full committee uh, met Ray uh, at, in prison. And they came out of meeting him personally uh, with the judgment that he was not particularly racist, which is contrary to what a lot of people say. Uh, and that he was basically a petty criminal. Not, and he wouldn't drive, we thought, all the way from California to Memphis to kill King unless there was money in it. Uh, and so we thought there had to be some other people who may want to kill King. Uh, and one of the things that we uncovered was a, a bounty that was offered on King's head for $50,000 uh, in, a, in a group in uh, I'll let- St. Louis, wasn't it? Yes, no, it was St. Louis. And there was a particular bar there that was owned by one of the brothers and they used to meet in it. So there was at least circumstantial evidence to indicate that uh, that offer, which was made to another man that we identified and talked to in the committee, who was basically a hitman uh, by profession. He turned it down. Uh, but, Uh, I would like to add at, at that point, we were never able finally to connect Ray to the money. Uh, but one of the reasons we looked into it is we were concerned about whether somebody financed his escape, which seemed to be very sophisticated. I should say that we, we came to the conclusion that it was not all that sophisticated and it didn't involve more money than Ray had access to at that time. So it was not solid evidence that somebody financed it beforehand and financed the trip that he, he flew away. So we came to the conclusion that that was not an indication of a conspiracy. But we did think that they, uh, uh, the racist offer. I would add uh, one of my regrets is that one of the things we found out is that the uh, FBI went to Attorney General Ramsey Clark while Ray was in flight and asked to put in a lawful wiretap on the King family, which is a standard operating procedure in flight cases. Everybody always calls home, or so the argument goes. And Ramsey Clark 
declined to put that in. And that's one of my regrets. I would like to have heard on tape what the conversations were inter the Ray family. Would they discuss about, have you picked up the bounty yet? Where is the bounty? Uh, or things like that. It certainly would have nailed down uh, the participation by somebody other than King in the assassination. That's the heart of what we found. I would say that I'm uncomfortable making the subject matter of a program like this, the death of Dr. King. I think it's more, far more important to talk about who he was and the impact he had and not just the grimy details of who shot him and where. That's not Dr. King. Dr. King is all those other things. So in that sense, uh, I hope we'll confine ourselves to his status and impact and not concentrate uh, in the, on the gritty details of the circumstances of his death. Well, I do think it's important to um, talk about his legacy and I hope that uh, uh, Michael Dyson will take us there too. Um, but one of the reasons I think people are interested in his assassination is it was at a time of great division. 1968 was one of the most divisive in the last century, certainly, even, even given what we've gone through in the last four years. Um, and that kind of atmosphere of the George Wallace running for president um, as a segregationist, still trying to um, keep black citizens apart uh, is, is really an important part of our heritage that I think we have to, have to remember uh, to be rid of it, hopefully one day entirely. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Professor Dyson? Well, um, thanks for having me. Um, obviously, the outsized character of Martin Luther King Jr.'s contribution, his legendary status, his ability to forge compact among disparate groups of people, to articulate American goals, noble aspirations, ideals with uh, unexcelled clarity, does, as uh, Professor Blakely says and suggests, point us to his life, what he meant in 39 years. However, I would say, and, and I agree with him, we don't have to get into the internecine squabbles about conspiracy theories uh, in terms of King's death, but we should focus on the fact that if we loved him so much, why did we kill him? So um, the contrast is rather dramatic that and as as Professor Blakey said, you know, it's not whether or not we determine if James Earl Ray was especially racist himself. You know, you don't have to be involved or invested in certain racial animus to commit a crime that is as heinous as this that had racial consequence so that intent doesn't exhaust effect. On the other hand, when Martin Luther King Jr. stood up I believe at the funeral of three of the four uh, young black teenagers, girls who were murdered 
uh, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, in Birmingham, 63, he said, it ain't about discovering who the killer was. The killer is America, right? So that um, in that sense, Professor Blake is absolutely right. Out of Martin Luther King Jr.'s own mouth, America conspired to kill him. It would be rather easy to scapegoat Mr. Uh, Ray or to hold him to account as he was, not that we shouldn't hold people accountable, but like the great Rabbi Abraham Yasha Heschel, a friend of Dr. King said, not all are guilty, but most are responsible. So who's responsible for the death of Martin Luther King Jr.? White supremacist society, racially intolerant bigots, um, feckless white liberals who oppose Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement into certain neighborhoods. Remember, there were white moderates who wrote a letter to King in 63, you know, um, I think what, seven Protestant clergy and a Jewish rabbi that said, you're moving too fast, we're on your side, but slow down, uh, it's horrible. He then penned, of course, his famous letter from Birmingham jail. So in the broader sense, absolutely right. Uh, it, is, it is probably of less consequence to determine the exact figure or figures who killed Martin Luther King Jr. than the forces in American society, the elements that conspired against him, that in 1963, when he came here to Washington, D.C., there were snipers on the top of the building for the March on Washington because they thought that Black people would erupt in consternation. So if it's, if it's possible to have snipers from the government on the rooftops in Washington, D.C. in 1963, it is not difficult to imagine that there were all sorts of interested parties in arresting King's forward movement. Let's not forget, however, that Martin Luther King Jr. was at a nadir in terms of popularity at the time of his death. Very few universities would offer him speaking engagements. No American publisher wanted to publish a book of his. Only until the last two and a half years, with all due respect to the great Secretary Jay Johnson, one of the remarkable political figures in uh, the last 20 years here, M Morehouse College refused to put Martin Luther King Jr. on the board of trustees until the last two and a half years. What was the reasoning? Uh, Mr. Lynch, a white man, famously of Marilyn Lynch, the chairman of the board of trustees said, Martin Luther King Jr. was a poor role model. Pray tell us why. Because he went to jail too often. Bruh, he wasn't selling crack, okay? So the point is <laughs> that Martin Luther King Jr. was at a nadir of popularity, uh, didn't make the most admired Americans list, uh, the top 10, uh, was seen as a pariah, in fisticuffs nearly with Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston, Whitney Young, uh, the head of the National Urban League, fighting over Vietnam and the like. So the man was in a, a tremendous contagion of violent rebuff, resistance, and peril. And I think that America has to look even more deeply uh, than a solo figure um, to look at the forces that conspired against Martin Luther King Jr. that made it reasonable that his life would be snuffed out. Yeah, I, I would uh, add to that, that 
if we think of him as a civil rights leader, he will carry a certain burden. Uh, but by the time he was in, in Memphis, he really was talking about uh, being paid a decent salary. He had moved into economic issues of poverty. And when he begins to, to speak, speak against the Vietnam War, he began moving into a much broader problem. And so that uh, our investigation doesn't say anything about that. But I think he, he was thrice condemned in Memphis. He was talking about poverty and he was talking about the war in Vietnam and he was talking about civil rights. Right. People have to talk about all three of those elements. Yep. Absolutely. I want to give uh, Jay Johnson an opportunity to respond to uh, Professor Dyson's remarks. Well, I don't, I, I don't know that I can respond. All I can do is agree with what much of what he said. Um, I, I'm a Morehouse man. I graduated Morehouse College in 1979 with MLK III. When I got to the Morehouse campus in 1975, Dr. King had been dead just seven years could still feel his presence on campus. His mentor, Dr. Mays, was still very much a presence on the Morehouse campus. There were people on the faculty in the 1970s who had taught Dr. King. Dr. King's father, Daddy King, would come around and preach every once in a while. And in my own speeches about Dr. King, I like to remind people of much of what has been said already about the last two or three years of his life. Much of his legacy and what he did has been airbrushed. Uh, school kids know that there's a street in every major city named after Martin Luther King or a school. They know I have a dream, which sounds very aspirational, but many people have forgotten that Martin Luther King was a troublemaker. And I mean that, I mean good trouble. He was a troublemaker. A lot of big city mayors and police commissioners did not want him to come to their cities, cities that now have streets named for him. And he knew that to bring about the type of social change that he was after, whether it was civil rights, uh, housing rights, uh, ending the war, economic equality, you had to put pressure on communities, which made them uncomfortable and caused trouble so to speak. And we have forgotten much of that legacy. And for his, for his trouble, he was murdered on April 4, 1968. I have always believed James Earl Ray did it, though, as has been said, he does not fit the profile of a racist assassin. Uh, and I have always wondered whether he was paid to do it. He's a, you know, as, as, as was said, he strikes me as a petty thief, but there does not seem to be any evidence of that. And, you know, 53 years after, no plausible uh, alternative theory other than that he was a lone gunman has really emerged. No deathbed confession or anything of that nature. So history is what it is in that regard. I guess that's what I have to offer. I'm, so I mean, I'm pretty much in agreement with what what uh, what has been said, Professor Dyson. 
absolutely right. And to build on both uh, Professor Blakey and uh, Secretary Johnson, um, the reality is that Martin Luther King Jr., as I said, was a pariah, as he indicated, and as Professor Blakey indicated, th that what he called the triple evils of our time, militarism, poverty, and racial injustice. And, you know, he said himself, when the shift happened about 64, he said it didn't cost the nation anything to, to do the civil rights bill. Didn't cost the nation anything, 65. Voting rights, it's no money, it's no material possession. There's no substantive material investment that has to be eroded. He said, but now we're asking the nation something that's gonna cost them something. Because economic inequality means that we have to reorder the social order according to what he called uh, the values that a revolution of values is his term. And so when he began to push against racial and economic injustice, and then through uh, the Vietnam War in there to, uh, as Secretary Johnson talked about dying on April 4th, a year to the date before he was murdered, he stood at a place I preached the other day at Riverside Church. And he said, you wouldn't have found my name on profiles and courage, right? Look at the self-criticism. Let's, let's remark upon the self-awareness and self-critique that a, a major leader had. He said, I was cowardly, basically. Who pushed him into his opposition to Vietnam? Coretta Scott King and Stokely Carmichael and James Bevel, uh, one of his lieutenants. And so Martin Luther King Jr., having seen the light, understanding the interconnection between, he said, the bombs of Vietnam explode back home. Why, why do you want me to go and speak against the violence, he said, of what? Because a riot is the language of the unheard, and yet you don't want me to speak about bombing rice paddies in Vietnam with napalm. So there, it is true that he made people uncomfortable, as Secretary Johnson suggested, including black people. The, the fisticuffs I alluded to rather uh, telegraphically there was, you know, he got into a discussion with Whitney Young and then they almost had a set too. And they had to separate them, <laughs> the Prince of Nonviolence. And, uh, you know, Whitney Young said, you know, you're messing up the movement by getting involved in, in um, you know, anti-war activism. He says, well, I don't want to challenge you by getting uh, involved in your business in the kingdom of material wealth and getting some uh, nice paydays from corporations. Oh, it got real ugly. It was might might have been uh, Snoop and uh, uh, Jay-Z versus Nas. So the, the point is, I think, as, as I in this part, is that, is that Martin Luther King Jr. was a troublemaker and the specific investment in erasing his trouble right? Uh, the, the government found him a troublemaker. They were tapping his home. Robert F. Kennedy authorized the wiretaps of Martin Luther King Jr. under pressure from J. Edgar Hoover because the ostensible reason was he's got communists. Mr. Wattel, he's got Stanley Levinson. Um, you know, so, so the Black Jewish dialogue that had been established uh, between King and some of his um, advisors uh, was being looked at as the, the, the reason and the premise for investigating King, but they were just, you know, obviously tawdry, um, you know, voyeurs who wanted to know about King's sex life. 
So at the end of the day, this was a remarkably courageous human being who forced America to come to grips with its untoward racial passions, its deeply entrenched anti-blackness, it's also hatred for poor working people, including white people. Um, when he was in jail in 1963, he asked his jailer, his jailer said to him, you know you're wrong, Dr. King. You know that this segregation thing is right and integration is wrong. He said, no, it's not. He got into a little debate. And then he said, now, how much money do you make? And when the jailer told him, he said, well, hell, you need to be out here marching with us. <laughs> so the point is, is that King understood with Cesar Chavez, uh, with anti-racist uh, practitioners and with anti-war activists that it was all interrelated and came together. That's why he was such a threat to American democracy, the, the, the keepers of it, and to those who believe themselves to be the custodians of American culture. Let me ask you something, because I'm, I'm curious about what the what you discovered, um, Professor Blakey, about the, the, the um, racism, just a sort of fundamental question. I mean, I've read that James Earl Ray was a racist, that his family thought he was a racist. Um, I just want to know what your what your findings were about that to me, which is sort of foundational, because I I don't think he was just a, yes, he might've been um, incentivized by money, but um, the racism of that era in his support for George Wallace would suggest that he was a racist. Well, you know, not everybody that supported George Wallace supported him on racial grounds. He was also right. a conservative. And a populist. And a populist. Uh, and the same thing is true, is if I was raised in the South, I went to a segregated school, I never saw, I saw water fountains, white, black, in Sears department store, but I never really realized what they were until I got out to Notre Dame. And all of a sudden I was with black students and I had a different perspective therefore. And I can think back on my mother, my father was dead, my uncle and the other people in my hometown. And I wouldn't call all of those people racist in the hard sense of racist, but they believed in segregation. I don't, there's a concept of original sin. Talk about black marks on your soul. Uh, there are structures in our society that are put together by previously people who had evil within their hearts that then go on and are seen by people who grow up in that context, but not understood until they get something outside. So, uh, one of those was slavery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and the economic difference between uh, who mowed lawns, uh, who washed dishes in houses, who took care of children. They were black people. We didn't call them black people then. That's a change. We used to call them Negroes. That's an old word. Uh, 
So once, once you come back to uh, James O'Reilly, I don't think he would have driven back from California to Memphis because he was a racist. I don't think he would have survived in prison he was seen as a racist. Do you think white grievance is part of it? Well, I think that's uh, maybe. I think it was money, pure and simple, that motivated him. I got to, can I? I, I yes, sure. please jump in. You're, that's what you're here for. Ah, I hesitate to disagree with my uh, distinguished colleague there, brother, brother Professor Blakey, but my God. Uh, maybe you're speaking about pedigree of bigotry. Maybe you're speaking about intensity of loathsome behavior. Maybe we're speaking about he didn't use the N-word and so on and so forth. I, I don't know. I'd have to ask what is the empirical verification for your argument that he lacked racism, but the fact that he killed Martin Luther King Jr. counts pretty big to me. That's number yes. one. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. Right. I'm just simply saying I don't think that explains it entirely. Well... I mean, and one of the one of the things that happened was that that was offered as the only explanation. Gotcha. And therefore, other people weren't involved. He did it by himself. Right. Well, I would tend to believe that if racism is involved, a whole bunch of white folk were involved, not just not just one lone character, right? Not one lone lone wolf assassin. But look, we're having a a, a trial right now right now of Derek Chauvin, right? Is he a bigot? Is he a racist? He killed a black man, and so on and so forth. Uh, and there are many causes of death, right? Fentanyl is in the body, there's hypertension. Bruh, your knee on his neck is the major cause of death, right? You can try to dissemble and to dissipate the intensity of the, 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 you know, the evidence. So when we look at Martin Luther King Jr., yes, I wouldn't deny that, you know, pecuniary compensation or some kind of, you know, motive of money and so on and so forth, all that might be true, but at the end of the day, Money couldn't have gotten him to kill maybe J. Edgar Hoover. Maybe it couldn't uh, get him to kill the local leader of the Ku Klux Klan, but it could get him to kill Martin Luther King Jr. In other words, money became a means and an instrument to realize a racist ambition that also happened to coincide with the fact that he all got paid. I'm not denying that, you know, compensation wasn't a driving factor, but at the end of the day, the racial intolerance and bigotry that is so deeply entrenched in the culture made it seem like it was a reasonable thing for Martin Luther King Jr. not to be here. That's a profound racist. Look, you can have a cell phone. The cell phone, can, you can have it on silent. Your cell phone can ring loud or it could be on silent. But at the end of the day, a message is still being communicated. It might be beeping, it might be silent, but a message is still getting through. James Earl Ray may not have been a loud bigot, but he was a bigot nonetheless. And his racism showed in his willingness to put a gun up in the air at approximately 6.01 p.m. on April 4th, 1968, and deliver a report across um, a, a, a parking lot that tore through the neck of a, of a figure who was larger than life and cut his necktie off. And when his body was was you know when they did the autopsy they said he had the heart of a 60 year old man so look i'm sure he had some heart disease and he had some other stuff but what killed him was a report was a bullet and i think the racism of american culture deeply entrenched made it seem reasonable to james earl ray whether or not he had specifically vigorous forms of bigoted belief 
what he was involved with, what he was bathed in as a culture that it made sense for Martin Luther King Jr. not to be here. And let me end by saying this. So when you say, yeah, everybody who supported Donald Trump wasn't a racist, that's true. That's probably true. But at the same time, when you look at the fact that when it's explained to you that this man has heinous beliefs about black people, horrible understandings of what race is and disdains black people, uh, your ability and willingness to say, I will subordinate a concern about racial hatred and racial animus to my pocketbook, I'm not sure what that makes you. Maybe it doesn't make you a racist, but it makes you complicit in forms of bigotry or the willingness to turn your eyes blindly against the lethal consequences of racial animus towards your brothers and sisters. And in that way, you might as well be a bigot and you might as well be a racist too. I don't disagree with anything that you said. My only point was you can understand more about James O. Ray by understanding that he was motivated by money. And if you then follow the money, who were the people who were offering it? And they were racial bigots with the Confederate flag in the back of their, at least the ones we found, mm -hmm. Confederate flag back on the wall. And they were offering $50,000 to a man who uh, was a hitman and had, had no racial animosity beyond what everybody had, but he turned them down. I, I would su suggest you're both right, but the thing that bothers is so horrendous about uh, ra racism and the division that we've seen at that time and more recently uh, in condoning or you know not de denouncing you know the uh, the protests the 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 Ku Klux Klan and whoever the white supremacists who showed up in Charlottesville a few years ago is that as Professor Dyson says the atmosphere makes it okay, it gives allowance to these uh, crimes, and and I I it was always bothered me at the time in, in, during our investigation that the racism piece was not a big discussion. It, it seems to me maybe maybe I I missed it because I was more on the Kennedy side, but I'm curious because I think we really need to root it out. And I think we have to talk about it, root it out. Yeah, well, our-, our uh, And you were making a case. I understand how you were going right, about it. Right, I was asked a specific question. Uh, if you remember, it was how well did the government agencies act in the investigation of King and Kennedy? And it was primarily a professional judgment and, and not a broader historical judgment. Although I will say, if you read our report carefully, there's a review of racial violence uh, going back to the Civil War time and the post-Civil War time and the adoption of the Ku Klux Klan uh, statute. Uh, we've tried to put it in a context, but we didn't make, <laughs> we didn't make the judgment, hey, we all had our hands in that pot because we didn't speak up when we should have spoken up. That's the, if everybody's responsible, then of course nobody's responsible. The culture is responsible. If the culture is responsible, then I'm not the culture. I'm not responsible. Uh, I think we're all responsible because we don't root out racism. We don't press for economic justice. Mm -hmm. 
and, and we don't press for peace rather than war. Well, think about, can, can I to add on to that uh, great, great statement, think about a couple of things. Think, first of all, that the complicity of the silent majority, right? Think okay. about the people who don't speak up, right? Um, they fired the guy the other day, the two guys, I don't know if they're black guys in the building when the Asian woman was getting, you know, savagely beaten and they stood there. Are they anti-Asian? No, they weren't on the outside whipping that woman in with fisticuffs of plenty, but they were complicit and they expressed and articulated an indifference that implicates them in a broader culture of responsibility. So when Abraham Heschel said, few are guilty, but all are responsible, I think you're absolutely right. Few people are guilty. Those who are guilty need to be held to account, but we're all responsible in the sense that we're complicit in a structure, in a regime of thought that is indifferent uh, to the consequences for some of our brothers and sisters, knowing full well, sometimes it's deliberate ignorance. You know, I, I was at Georgetown before I went to Vanderbilt and the Catholics had this notion of culpable ignorance. You're driving along, the police stops you and you go, what did I do? I didn't know I was wrong. Well, the sign over there said, oh, I didn't know that. Well, when you did, you, you studied for your book to get your test, you were supposed to know that that sign meant don't go with 35 miles an hour. It's called culpable ignorance. So claiming that you're ignorant really doesn't cut it when you're supposed to be responsible for the knowledge you have. And so much of white supremacy, so much of white animus, so much of white racism has been, I didn't know, I was ignorant. I didn't understand until, I'm not denying that people don't grow and emerge and evolve, but Martin Luther King Jr. said, it is the white moderate that I find so reprehensible. I, I get the white bigot. I, I know what they believe. I, I see what they are. He said, but I go past some of these churches sometimes and wonder who their God is. And so he said it was the white moderate that believed that they were not a problem, believed that they didn't have a racist bone in their body, well, what about all those damn muscles? But believed that they had no racial animus toward black people, he said were some of the worst problems presented to the struggle for freedom and justice in America because they were the major stopgap that prevented the flourishing of a coming to grips of a, of a, a wrestling and a reckoning that he thought had to occur. So I, I just wanted to balance that because George Wallace might've stood in the door but millions of white folk echoed his resistance and supported him and believed he was doing the right thing. There's got to be some dynamic dialectical tension between the two. Let me agree with you and point out one of the problems that we have. If we are lawyers and we think, is this a case against James Earl Ray? Right. We take a look at individual responsibility. Absolutely. And when we take a look at individual responsibility, we ignore everything that you've said. Mm -hmm. And the way in which our criminal justice system thinks about responsibility is one of the problems that we don't deal with police violence. We don't deal with the implications of ghetto violence. Why is there a ghetto there in the first place? If they weren't in the ghetto, would there be any violence? We don't ask the broader questions. We ask, did he do it or did he not do it? Sure. We hide from ourselves our general responsibility by focusing on legal responsibility. Gotcha. 
Okay, you guys are, this is a fascinating conversation. Jay, you have something you wanted to add? Yes, um, we have somebody on this conversation who actually knew Martin Luther King uh, and he's, he's hiding on mute, um, Bill Wachtell, whose father was Dr. King's personal lawyer. Bill went with the King family to Oslo to see Dr. King receive the Nobel Prize. And he's devoted much of his adult life to promoting and uh, pursuing Dr. King's legacy. And I know Bill has thoughts about all of this. And so, uh, Bill, if you're still with us, um, please say something. Thank you, Jay. Nice to hear your voice, and Patricia, as always. Good to, uh, good to hear your voice, Bill. I wish we had you on screen, but thank you for joining us. Okay. Um, and I certainly salute your continued effort to raise the volume on topics that most people don't choose to talk about much. And I guess James Baldwin is a good inspiration over your left shoulder. Um, that's John Lewis. Oh, that's John Lewis. Oh my God. Oh my God. But John Lewis and, and, and Rose Bader Ginsburg. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Shame on me. Um, look, uh, yes, I had the privilege of growing up in the household where Dr. King and Coretta were just, you know, part of the constant dialogue and the like. And, you know, I've heard all the interesting conversation about what happened in the past. Um, I also heard this morning that there are 375 more billionaires this year in America than there were last year. And uh, the phrase that Martin used to say frequently is that the rich can't get richer if the poor are getting poorer. And I'm sorry to say that for me, the lament is not losing Dr. King, but us losing the powerful message that in fact, if the chasm between the rich and the poor continues to expand, then we will perish like fools. So um, I have my own thoughts about Dr. King's assassination, but again, it really is irrelevant. The goal is to make sure that um, his prophecy is heard. And Jay, I appreciate your, you know, kind words. And um, I mean, if somebody wants to ask me a question, I'm happy to answer a question, but I don't know that I have much more to add. Well, we would like to get some um, questions from other folks on, on the call too, but we're, we're thrilled you're here and uh, really respect the work that you've done and your father did. Um, with the drum major institute. So thank you. Um, do we have any other comments or questions? We're, we're eager to hear from you. Otherwise um, we'll go back to uh, Professor Blakey. I've just about done all that I, it's my fair shot to do. <laughs> uh. You know, can I ask you a question about the FBI then? Um, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me that R Ramsey Clark wouldn't um, put a, a a tap on James Earl Ray's phone. It, it's just it's, it's incomprehensible to me. Um, but did you what was the it, did you look at the FBI and what what did you see there with respect to uh, one of the things we did? We did this with different theories. One theory was that the FBI did it. And let's see if we can prove it. 
And then we identified all of the FBI agents that were involved in COINTELPRO. And we tried to have some connection between them and uh, James O'Reilly. And I can't tell you that the FBI didn't put James O'Reilly to it because I never proved that. We never had the evidence on it. It was an absence of evidence that led us to, that us to think that we haven't proved it. Suspicion is not proof. And the suspicion is the FBI did it, but there's just no proof out there that we were able to find. And believe me, we looked. Mm -hmm. We made the same assumption about the Ku Klux Klan. And that meant the various subset groups uh, that, that were bombing places, would they have shot Dr. King? And the answer is, I think so, yes. But we were ever, never able to connect a Klan unit with James O'Reilly. And I, we were sure that James O'Reilly did it. That we thought that was not a very difficult uh, issue. Uh, so we, we took the subjects of a serious conspiracy investigation, which was not done by the FBI in, in, at that time. They didn't do a serious conspiracy investigation in the Kennedy case either. So many years after the event, it's difficult to do a conspiracy investigation. And that's the story of where we were. We didn't have unlimited money. We didn't have unlimited time. And we didn't have all the tools that a professional prosecutor has available to him. And would, at the time of the assassination, if they had been used, we might have had different answers. Can I, can, I think that's uh, powerful. I think that, again, one of the reasons I'm so critical of cancel culture, I understand why people want, because they go by suspicion or skepticism or belief, motivated by, you must have done it. And then the digital lynch mob accumulates and we <laughs> And we try to eviscerate people, right? <clears throat> so I'm definitely as rickety and broken down as the criminal justice system is, I'll take my chances with the ability to present countervailing evidence and make an argument than yes. somebody yes. on the internet yes. trying, to, trying to rip me, tear me out, my entrails out because they disagree with me. And then no evidence is adduced, but they just come full fledged. But let me say this. You sound like you're a lawyer and not a historian. <laughs> Bless you, my friend. So here's the point. In one sense, it ain't got to be no conspiracy. It's Edgar Allan Poe's purloined letter hidden in plain sight. You don't have to have a conspiracy when the head of the when the, the head of the FBI hates the man, has given signals, sends tapes to his wife's home to the home to, to undercover. You know what you you should do. No. Right. Exactly. To kill yourself. Right. And then when you are, you know, you are hypocritically, given your own predilections, uh, existentially, uh, engaging in smearing this man, and then on top of that, having your FBI lieutenants refuse to warn King when there are credible threats to his life. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy. No. Just do your job as FBI 
and you helped kill him. You didn't pull the trigger. James Earl Ray, I'm convinced, did that. But you set the logic in place to make it reasonable that the snuffing of Martin Luther King Jr. was a legitimate choice to be exercised among the many others in American society. So in that sense, you would, you would find interesting in our committee report, the essence of the argument was made. Could you say that by not doing things, the FBI, not doing things to protect King, right. doing things to endanger his life. Absolutely. There are more, th there's more kinds of murder than first degree murder. Absolutely. You can have reckless endangerment. Mm -hmm. And did the FBI recklessly endanger King Absolutely. up to the point where they're responsible for the homicide? Yeah. And, and you should have seen how my committee reacted when I brought up that legal theory. Yeah. I think we made it. You yeah. can say that the FBI was responsible for King's death in terms of what they did and didn't do. Right. Did they recklessly bring mm -hmm. about the fact that somebody else would think it was a legitimate thing to do? Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm down with you on that. Yeah. Uh, you, you might find it interesting to read that section in our report. Oh, Jay, you have another comment, Jay? I have an observation and a question for Professor Dyson. Professor Dyson, get ready. My first observation is um, I just wanted to make a note about another famous Atlantan. April 4th is another anniversary. April 4, 1974, Henry Aaron tied Babe Ruth, 714. And what was notable about that day was this very soft-spoken Black man went out of his way to say he was disappointed that the Cincinnati Reds did not note that that was the sixth anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Um, and today is the anniversary of the day he broke the record, 715. Um, so, uh, Professor, let me ask you this. What do you think about the, uh, I, I thought I was gonna be able to predict the answer. Maybe I can't. What do you think about taking the All-Star game out of Cobb County? Mm. Well. Patricia, I know you're never going to invite me to another one of these. Oh, I, know I love that question. It's a great question. Very interesting question. Yeah, um, I'm in support of it, and I'll tell you why. You know, I understand people who say, look, the disproportionate burden will fall upon poor people. And that extracting that game from Atlanta deprives, you know, Atlantans of millions upon millions of dollars that could go into the common till that would support their efforts uh, to, to live a decent life, if not to overturn or challenge uh, Governor Kemp's uh, legislation. But let's go back to Martin Luther King Jr. If Martin Luther King Jr. could say the following, sometimes in America, it will be the blood of black people flowing in the streets of America that will bring about transformation and redemption to American society. If a man had to some the unmitigated gall and others the, the temerity, others the courage and others uh, the self-destructive impulse to suggest that black sacrifice could ultimately transform America, I believe that a targeted boycott, a targeted withdrawal of complicity with a system 
that is problematic has a greater impact symbolically with the Major League Baseball withdrawing its complicity with a system that it finds morally reprehensible and the monies that could be brought to bear as a result of their remaining there. I think they took the higher ground. I think it's a moral statement. And I think it says something about a Kingian analysis about not immediate gratification, but long-term sacrifice for the purposes of challenging what they perceive to be a, a fundamentally unjust and radically hierarchical uh, order that puts white over black, that puts voting rights of black people at the back of the line, and that reintroduces what I think of a sublime uh, interpretation by President Biden, a kind of Jim Crow effort there. So that's, you know, I understand both sides and I get it. And I would, I would be satisfied either way, but my interpretation of it, that it was a heroic thing to do. And it ought to be done in similar areas again and again and again. And maybe we, we, we will get more white people to pay attention when it affects them personally, immediately. Yeah. Racism in our society is going to take a lot of pain, a lot of economic pain, and we show little sign of willingness to, to assume it today. Uh, Nancy Collins, you have a question? Oops. She was having trouble with her. There she goes. I think she's having trouble with her her uh, this is the this is the quietest I have ever seen a group of, of in our audience in terms of questions. So I think people are fascinated with what you are have said, uh, the conversation here. And uh, thank you so much, Jay, for your uh, comments and participation. But I, you know, I, I have so many questions that I, I want to ask. But I, I, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. It's, it's. Um, I think it's frustrating for a lot of Americans um, that they want to have a, a, an answer that makes sense, to them. and it doesn't quite make sense when we have a lone killer like Lee Harvey Oswald and, and perhaps James Earl Ray. Um, and I'm, I suspect that that's part of, of what makes us ask these questions over and over again. Well, yeah, it's, uh, well, it's an honor to be here today. It's a, it's a great conversation. I think they saw brother Jonathan Barnett and said, look, we don't have a chance here. We, <laughs> you know, we, we don't, we don't stand a chance here. Um, but I think ultimately the reason it's important and to, to, to secretary Johnson, Think about Hank Aaron, uh, a heroic figure, quiet thunder for the very deed of breaking a record of a white baseball great named Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth didn't hit the most home runs against the best ball players. He hit them against the best white ball players, right? And, and what Willie Mays, <laughs> what Willie Mays showed, what Josh Gibson showed, what Josh White showed, what, what, what you know the greats in that game satchel page showed 
is that even though you limited and segregated a game where the great Bambino and Babe Ruth stood up to legendary proportions and swatted that ball with, you know, with, with, with conscienceless repetition and became a larger than life figure, what they had to confront ultimately is that as great as he was, the very notion that a black man could supplant him, could displace him, could do something even greater uh, is a mindset that is just as destructive as the explicit articulation of racial animus and anti-blackness on the ground. That's why it's a both and situation here. James Earl Ray pulled the trigger. The gun was put into his hands by a society that believed King was a pariah. And as uh, you were saying earlier, Professor Blakey, uh, the, the reality is the FBI, the sin of omission, we're not going to warn him about when his life is in danger. We're not going to tell him that these are legitimate threats. We're not going to offer him the protection of any citizen that any citizen should receive as a member of our society. So that the fundamental subversion of their very principles is what Martin Luther King Jr. was so brilliant at. He underscored the fact that the more you hate me, really what you hate is American democracy. And ultimately racism is a judgment against the very aspiration in this country of doing the right thing. And King didn't just save black America, King saved America. He brought America within the arc of its moral aspiration and its noble ideals and made it for once adhere to the very principles that it claimed ostensibly that it embraced. So in that sense, his death on April 4th, 1968, changed the tenor, the tone, the texture, and the timber of American democracy and made this nation finally reach forward to the goals that it said it claimed it rested on. And so in, my, in that sense, to me, he's a refounding father. He joins Hamilton and Lincoln and Jefferson and Abigail Adams, for that matter, as figures of enormous import who made this country fundamentally what it is. That is a beautiful statement, beautiful statement. We have wasted too much talent uh, in this country that could help make us even better and better, and we need to get beyond that. But I, I want to thank you all. I wish we could get to all the questions. We, Richard Gordon, I'm so sorry. Nancy, we lost. Um, Jonathan. But I, I, I promise everyone we'd get you out pretty much on time, and we're running over it. Bob Blakey, so great to see you. Michael Dyson, it's so lovely to see you. Uh, Jay Johnson, you are uh, one of our great supporters. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I hope you'll be with us um, in the um, coming weeks. We're going to be continuing our, our focus on um, our mayoral candidates. We've got Eric Adams up with Tom Allen. We're going to see uh, FBI agent, former FBI agent Flint Watts. Uh, we've got Ray McGuire in a couple of weeks. And um, Secretary Jay Johnson with former FBI agent Mike German will be talking about right-wing domestic terrorism, wow. um, which is certainly a related topic. But thank you so much, gentlemen and ladies. Thank you. Thank you.